Welcome back, listeners, and welcome to Hindsight is Horrifying. You are with your co-hostess, Darth Jader, and your co-host, Jason. Why don't you say hi to the listeners, Jason? Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. So, this, our third episode, is going to be a little bit different from the episodes that you're so far accustomed to. You know, all two of them, where we're no longer (laughs) delving into hidden adult behavior or jokes, rather, that are hidden in our favorite movies and television shows from our childhoods. But rather, we're just going to go down memory lane and, as we call it, nerd out over one of our favorite movies that was actually intended for us when we were a little bit older. So we would have gotten all the jokes and basically been on par with all the humor of the movie. So what better before this wonderful Thanksgiving than to go back to a classic, the 1984 Ghostbusters. Yeah, and just because it's not Halloween anymore, it does not mean that you can't watch a spooky movie. In fact, I actually think that Halloween should just be considered the beginning of the uh, spooky movie season. Absolutely. Uh, Because, frankly, I would watch uh, movies like that uh, pretty much all the time if I had a choice. Um, We are indeed talking about Ghostbusters, the 1984 classic movie directed by Ivan Reitman and written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. These guys are legends, and uh, this movie stands out for me in particular as one of my all-time favorite movies, even though I had a bit of a rough start with it. You did, and we'll get to that in about two seconds, but for those listeners that we have who are not terribly familiar with the 1984 version of Ghostbusters, or not version, but the original, the original, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Let me backtrack. Yeah. <laughs> there have been so many variations of Ghostbusters. Let me apologize, listeners. The original Ghostbusters. So the basic synopsis, in case you're not already familiar, is that um, I'm Google. This is what I'm looking up. And then Jason's going to give you his own personal synopsis, just because he has such a personal connection with this movie. So the synopsis reads that after the members of a team of scientists... Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray lose their cushy positions at a university in New York City. They decide to become Ghostbusters to wage a high-tech battle with the supernatural for money. They stumble upon a gateway to another dimension, a doorway that will release evil upon the city. The Ghostbusters must now save New York from complete destruction. You know, it's so interesting to think that when this came out, that synopsis you just read... If that was written as the synopsis for a movie that came out in 2018, there's really no way I would ever think that this is going to be a seriously good movie. I just, no way. Well, it's almost like a a Netflix summary where it's like, Joey and Phoebe go on a trip and it doesn't go well. And it's just like, okay, that tells me nothing. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, swimmers end up in trouble in Nantucket. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you go to the original pitch for this movie that Reitman posted to uh, Columbia Pictures, he sold it on the line of, um, the story is a bunch of ghost janitors in New York. (laughs) So what's your personal synopsis? Because I know you have a lot of personal stories and feelings that go along with Ghostbusters, Jason. So what's your summary? Well, I think the Ghostbusters, more than probably any other movie, sort of exemplifies the the era of movie watching for me. You know, I mean, I was I was watching uh, uh, movies like this and Fletch or uh, 
Spies Like Us or Caddyshack or... With the classic group of Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, those... Those big hitters, yeah. For I mean, sure. Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, you, you, know, you can just go on and on and on for you know the, all of these classic movies, and I think that of that genre, which is not really a genre because they're not even all comedies. I think if you just were you know going to look at '80s movies that were not um, the most serious, I think Ghostbusters exemplifies it. I think that's it's the perfect tone. You know, the 80s was that era when everything happened in New York. Sure. You know, all the interesting stuff was happening in New York because at the time, New York was interesting to the rest of the world for all the wrong reasons because it was basically a big dump where people would murder you. Right. You know, like you do. Yeah. And of course, you know, this is before the Giuliani days when everything was cleaned up. But for me, banished the evil cigarettes from every bar. Well, yeah, and before they, you know, they cleaned up Times Square. You know, people today don't even realize that Times Square in the 80s was nothing but porno theaters. It was Hookerville. Yeah. That's, that's what it was there for. Yeah, it, 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 that's not fake. That's real. That's what Times Square was. You know, it wasn't uh, people in knockoff, uh, you know, costumes of Disney characters trying to take pictures with your kids. It was people who would rob you and murder you. That's reality. That's a, that was a legit option. That's something that might happen to you while you're strolling down the street. Yeah. So for me personally, though, the uh, my uh, my initial interaction with this movie was whenever I was probably I don't know nine nine or ten years old, and I was uh, I had to stay at my grandmother's house for, for some reason, and you know my mom said, "Well, look, I'll, I'll rent you a movie, and you can watch a movie." And then you can pretend to like the food that your grandmother cooks for you and then go to bed. Well, sure. Um, and I said, that's great. So we went to our local video rental store, a pre-Blockbuster. Blockbuster didn't exist at wow. this point in time. That's yeah. a very old sentence. Yes, I know. I know. Um, so we went down there and uh, they had Ghostbusters. And I said, oh, I want to rent Ghostbusters. And, if, you know, my mom was a little skeptical. I don't remember... <laughs> You know, it's funny. This is one of my all-time favorite movies, and I'm trying to remember if it was rated. I, I want to say it was PG. Yes, it was PG. It was PG. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and of course, you know, I, I was I was allowed to watch PG movies, and my mom saw the funny-looking ghost on the fr- on the on the box, and it said it was a comedy, and it had Bill Murray in it, and so that was fine, and so she rented it for me. And even though he'd been in Caddyshack and yeah, well, other such films, your mom apparently trusts Bill Murray more than she should have. Well, but this was P- it's PG. I mean, how bad can the language be, right? Makes um, sense. And uh, I sat on my grandmother's couch. My mom put the tape in, and she didn't even have time to leave the, ha- the house because by the time that the librarian ghost turned and lunged at uh vinkman and uh, egon egon and uh ray yeah i launched off of the couch i hit the stop button on the vcr so hard because i was so scared that it actually ejected the tape wow i think there are safety settings on dvd players and blu-ray players that don't even let you do that anymore (laughs) yeah kids these days they don't know what it's like but so that then, yeah, that was that was it, and it was uh, I think it was probably a year later I actually sat down and watched it again. Probably, I think it was because a friend of mine said, "Hey, I want to watch Ghostbusters," and of course I'm you know breaking to a cold sweat. But then I think I can't act scared in front of my friend. Well, sure. And 
that was it. I ended up uh, watching it, and it it became. It's actually one of the reasons I love cinema is because of this movie. Wow. So then, okay, so there was a significant gap between your first impression and the first time you actually yeah. sat down and watched the movie properly. So just based on your first real viewing of the movie, what would you say would have been your young kid synopsis of the movie? Oh, young kid synopsis of the movie. Um, people get fired from their job. Right. They become ghost hunters. And... See, as a kid, I always had the impression that they had almost destroyed the world and then had to fix it. But when in fact it was actually uh, Peck. Yeah, it was the EPA. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be fair, they did have the containment system. They probably. It was probably a little uh, low budget. <laughs> Not as secure as it could have been, given the funds that they had as the Ghostbusters. Well, they could have built the... There was no reason for them to put the containment unit in the middle of the city. They could have always taken it and put it in, you know, someplace that nobody would have cared about, like New Jersey. Well, you're also talking about... I thought this was the New York you were saying where... You know, Times Square was Hookerville, and well, New York true. apparently just didn't still... have standards the way that it does these days. See, but that's that's the difference, though. New York back then, it was full of hookers and muggers and porno theaters, but it was still New York. It was if, New if, York, New York. It's a hell of a town. If only Giuliani had been around, he would have made sure that those ghosts got stored in a proper facility, oh, yeah. damn it. Giuliani would have personally gone and dealt with the ghosts. <laughs> he would have personally dealt with Zool. Made sure none of them were smokers. Absolutely. Absolutely No not. smokers, yeah. Well, first there would have to be a non-smoking section, which would probably be the containment facility for the ghosts. But then, you know, they you just have to get rid of all of them after a certain point. You know, and one of the other things, too, is that, you know, shortly after I saw the movie, or my, right around the time I saw the movie, I was also watching the cartoon, The Real Ghostbusters. Right, which and, they had to name differently for legal reasons. Yes, yes, because Columbia owned the rights to everything but the TV they did not own the TV rights. No, um, I actually looked this up Sony? because I, I did a whole lot of research because this is one of Jason's picks for the podcast. And I'll admit, listeners, this was a little bit before my time. And I grew up with the Ghostbusters, yeah, but uh, you're just jealous. But basically what I found out, because I had to do some research to really know my stuff the way that Jason just knows off the top of his head. Uh, it was actually Universal. That had run a television show, from what I found, called The Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Columbia owned everything except for the TV rights. Uh, because... Because well, Universal had the TV rights. Universal the did the TV rights, exactly. And then <clears throat> Columbia did the movie. And then um, it was this really big twist of fate where the... <laughs> it was... The Universal one was the weirdest show. No one's ever seen it. No one's ever seen the show. It was on for... A... I didn't know it existed until today where I looked it up. So. Oh, yeah, with a talking gorilla. Um, it was... What was it? It was a talking gorilla. A uh, guy... It was like a, a Three Stooges only terrible version of uh, of a TV show. And yeah, it predated all of this. And they actually tried to relaunch it. Oh, really? Yeah. They they tried to relaunch it They because they started running the cartoon. Again, okay. yeah, because it was a live-action show originally. Yeah, because uh, I'm looking at my notes right now from, you know, one of those very 
credible articles where it's like 20 things you might not know about Ghostbusters because I had to get on your level for this. Uh But in the 1970s, apparently Universal Studios had produced, like you said, the live action TV series titled The Ghostbusters. And their lawyers threatened Columbia legal action if the name of the movie wasn't changed. So Reitman was kind of in a pickle as the director because even in the movie you have... Uh, the Ghostbusters referring to themselves as Ghostbusters and people in the street going, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, and yelling for them. So there was no really changing the movie title. No, no, absolutely not. But in a weird change of luck, Frank Price, the head of Columbia Pictures, who was the guy who greenlit the movie in the first place, he was actually moving to Universal Studios to become the new head of studio there. Oh. And so Reitman was allowed to keep the name for the film, but um, the legal snafu, as it was, came back up again when the cartoon came out to replicate the movie, and that's why they had to call it The Real Ghostbusters. That is fascinating. I had no idea. So it was, it was literally, if he hadn't been moving studios... Yep. Man, what would they have done? Uh, they wouldn't have been able to do much of anything, from what I can tell. It's just, uh, you know, uh, Frank Price. So let's give a shout out to him because he saved yeah. the day. Yeah, he absolutely did. Wow. Yeah, you know, in the cartoon, which <laughs> I still to this day, I love the cartoon. I do just you, remember Slimer from the cartoon like most kids back of that era did. If you go back and watch it, there are some very dark, twisted episodes of that show and what's interesting is that one of the writers uh for the real ghostbusters was a guy named j michael straczynski who is one of my favorite tv writers uh probably my favorite tv writer he did a show called babylon 5 which in case you haven't heard of it yeah well i mean there's a lot of people who've never heard of it to be fair you know i mean it, it it was a show that fought you know valiantly against being canceled for five years fair enough in fact, I think it kind of technically was canceled once, and then came uh, back. So was Family Guy. People, uh, yeah. shows make resurgences. It happens. But uh, Straczynski, uh, he wrote um, several episodes of The Real Ghostbusters. And if you watch it, you can absolutely tell that there's grown-ups writing this. And, I mean, Cthulhu shows up in The Real Ghostbusters. Oh, my. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a real deal. I mean, it's, there are some dark and twisted uh, things in there. Straczynski, one of the things he said was that he, he hated Slimer so much that, yeah, he hated him. Um, Which, imagine as a writer having to write, you know, you're trying to do this like serious, you know, (laughs) I can make all the. You have to contend with Slimer as a character. Yeah, I can make all the characters do serious things, but Slimer, I don't know. So he would just torture Slimer. Uh, you yeah. did, yeah. I've heard you talk about that. And another thing that I learned about Slimer was borderline adorable, but borderline sad because, uh, as I've heard you mention, also as since Dan Aykroyd was one of the co-writers on the script, when he did his original version, it was just off the rails, insane. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, even uh, when Reitman took a look at the original script, he was like, "Look, this is going to cost us about three hundred million dollars to do, <laughs> so we're going to have to." Switch this up a little bit, but Slimer, uh, so going back into the fact that Aykroyd had to kind of recontextualize and reimagine his script, uh, but he really wanted uh, John Belushi to be part of the movie. Oh, yeah. John, it was it was going to be a vehicle for him and John Belushi. Oh, yeah. They were going to be partners, you know, like we've seen them in um, the Blues Brothers, but, it, you know, they were going to be busting ghosts with, mm-hmm. with wands and stuff, and... 
But what it came down to was obviously the death of John Belushi put a bit of a wrench into that idea from what I understand. But uh, they, the writers still ultimately wanted to keep some sort of tribute to John Belushi. So technically he's there in spirit, both literally and physically, because Slimer was based on John Belushi. Hmm. That's what I'm finding out today is that if that's they, interesting. I've never heard that before. He's got that kind of sloppy, you know, you know, belching, kind of rude, crazy, yeah, but yeah. funny, and everybody loves him, and that's the character that yeah, they he, remember he's the, the animal most. House ghost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's the ghost of Animal House. Well, and it, it's interesting, you know, speaking about Dan Aykroyd, this movie, I think uh, any student of film um, would be would be well advised. Uh, watch this movie, and then when you're finished with this, go and watch a movie called uh, Nothing But Trouble, which is it's a movie that came out after Ghostbusters, quite a bit after Ghostbusters, um, and it starred Dan Aykroyd, uh, Chevy Chase, uh, Demi Moore, very young Demi Moore, and sort of a breakout role, although frankly it's lucky for her that her career survived this movie well she did do a photo shoot fully nude and pregnant so i mean there's a couple of things that her career survived yeah yeah i suppose um but um she or she uh um, if you look at those two movies the difference between those two movies is that they're both dan Aykroyd movies um nothing but trouble was written by dan Aykroyd. i believe it was also directed by dan Aykroyd. but ghostbusters is a dan Aykroyd movie where he is reined in, where you have people saying, look, I know that you want to do this thing where we're traveling through time, fighting ghosts and all this. We, we can't do that. Okay. You got to limit yourself. Well, yeah, because even the puffed marshmallow man, who's just the iconic finish to this amazing movie, he's he's the big guy in this movie that everybody remembers alongside mm-hmm, Slimer. Mm-hmm. But in the original version, apparently... The puffed marshmallow man was just stay one puffed. of the, stay puffed. Sorry, was just one of the first couple of guys right. that they were supposed to even face, right. and that's why Reitman was like, "No, this is going to cost more money than currently exists yeah. in the world right yeah. now." Yeah. So we got to scale it back a little bit. And, and it's it's if you watch Nothing But Trouble, what you'll see is Dan Aykroyd, where they just let him go as wild as he wants to with everything. And it is one of the worst, most offensive. <laughs> I mean, it's genuine, genuinely an offensive movie. Oh wow! Like if you watch it, it's so bad to the point where you you feel like you're being insulted because there's so many things. It's just, you know, it's they're not just fart jokes and gross out jokes and you know creature effects and this and that. It's, it's specifically just, oriented stuff. Yeah, it's just <laughs> to the point where you're thinking, why would you think that anybody would want to see this? But the difference is, there was no Ivan Reitman. You know, Ivan Reitman yeah. wasn't there to go, Danny, we can't do this. Got to reel it in a little bit. Right, yeah. And so Ghostbusters has that. But one thing I wanted to point out, too, about the, the John Belushi thing was that when they decided to cast Bill Murray, mm-hmm. um, if you watch the movie, about um, right at the end of Act 1, beginning of Act 2... You get a montage where you see the Ghostbusters and they're it, it you know they're they're being very successful they're they're being yeah they're starting to gain credibility you know, around New York and people aren't considering them kooky yeah there's a shot of 
Uh, I think it's just of uh, Ray, Peter, and Egon. I don't think uh, Winston's there. But they're running down the street, and they have their proton packs on their back. Okay. That's actually the first shot that Bill Murray did in costume, in character. That was his first, the first time he was ever Peter Vinkman was that shot. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, to make it his movie, sort of, I mean, he he really was sort of a late, you know, uh, later edition. Yeah. You know, to that makes thing. sense, yeah. considering the rewrites, but, and uh, considering the, actually, when you're talking about, like, swapping out characters and whatnot, and who might have been originally intended for what, apparently, um, Louis Tully, uh, Sigourney Weaver slash Dana's neighbor in this movie, who's just obviously in love with her and the great rick moranis yeah rick moranis uh he stalks her in the hallway every time he sees her but and he's always trying to invite her over for you know like a soda or something but um apparently shove off hoser yeah shove off hoser but poor rick moranis but uh or nothing i love him uh, well he's iconic and it's it's lucky that he was because originally apparently dan Aykroyd had the idea of having john candy play the role of louis tully and from what i found out uh, john candy actually envisioned louis as louis louis sorry uh, a stern german man with a thick (laughs) accent who kept dozens of dogs in his apartment and candy also wanted the character rewritten and made into a starring role so ultimately they decided against candy so that louis could be played by rick moranis who actually provided not just his own sort of misfit you know losery sort of style but he also provided his own wardrobe oh yeah (laughs) those are all original rick moranis outfits i know it makes it even more depressing doesn't it (laughs) like that's well not really i mean it's either more depressing or even better i can't really decide well i mean no he's canadian he just wore what he and we've lost our Canadian listeners along with the australians i believe the japanese the french like oh god (laughs) We're losing so many people, hey, and it's only episode three. Bastards! Oh god! <laughs> but yeah, so Rick Moranis just brought uh, too much of his own is, flavor to it. I am actually getting a little sad every time I see Harold Ramis, though, because it does it. It is sad that we lost Harold Ramis. Yeah, you know. Well, he was one of those really stable presences in comedy, where yeah. you know when you see him. Excuse me, when you see him as Egon, you're like, oh yeah, Harold Ramis. Yeah, I know who that is. But Jesus. when you s- sorry, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> very when you- obvious product placement right there. Well, you know, it's not Superman being thrown into the Coke truck or anything, <laughs> but it's definitely there. But Damn, yeah, Jesus now. <laughs> see, I can, I it's can effective. Murder a box of Jesus right now. <laughs> it's effective, and that may have something to do with the beer that we're drinking. So mm. let's take a second to mm. give a nod to once again our. Um, very awesome local company, Variant Brewing. Uh, we actually tried to get a little more adventurous with our flavors this time. I attempted something uh, called Walking Distance, but they did not have a crowler in that flavor, unfortunately. So, uh, well, it's not all that unfortunate because I'm still with my favorite flavor of Raspberry Lemon Goza. And Jason, what do you have over there? I have the Aromasphere. Ooh, and how's yeah. that working out for you? Very, very good. I'm about halfway through it right now, and... Uh... I think about two more sips, I'm going to turn into Dean Martin. Or, you know, Venkman <laughs> in Ghostbusters, where you I just start... these people get in my room. 
Oh, goodness. But, yeah, so uh, thank you to Variant Brewing for these delicious beers, as always. And in case uh, you're not familiar with their location, they're located right in the middle of downtown Roswell, right next to Roswell City Uh, Hall. Roswell, Georgia. Yes, not New Mexico. Don't go there, listeners. If If you go to Roswell, New Mexico, and you ask for this beer... They they will just give you an anal probe. Um, I I'm sure there's a story behind that, but it doesn't sound very interesting. So let's move on. No, you know <laughs> I actually saw an article the other day. This is a true story. It's funny you bring this up about Roswell, about the whole UFO thing. Uh-huh. And apparently, whoever did the uh, the blog post for, for this, on this website had just done a quick Google image search. Okay. Because the image for uh roswell that they used in the article about the roswell ufo crash was a picture of the sign on the 400 that said roswell no way i'm so swear to god oh no (laughs) that's Uh, kind of fantastic yeah yeah, it's awesome insofar as like images and special effects that actually brings me to another fun fact that i learned about ghostbusters today which was they had to that the project was greenlit which was great but then reitman was basically told that it had to be done when the script wasn't even finished yet within 12 months so they had to do special effects they had Can to you cast believe they had that's to what do, it used to be like because uh, nowadays netflix says hey here's a big check just give us a movie in a couple years oh yeah okay so yeah they had only 12 months to finish the script, shoot the film, and create and finish the special effects. To which uh, that widescreen shot that we get when the Ghostbusters are first commissioned to bust a ghost, which turns mm-hmm. out to be Slimer. He obviously has that really big moment where he's spinning around the ballroom chandelier. Great. Yeah, great shot. And I can't remember which uh, special effects person it was, but they said that it just wasn't panning out the way that they wanted it to. So the the Ghostbusters have chased Slimer into this ballroom and he's spinning maniacally around the chandelier and they were running out of time. They were running out of, you know, just everything that they needed to make the shot happen. So one of the producers or special effects guys came up with the idea to take a peanut <laughs> and spray it with kind of like a, a paint that was kind of luminous Mm-hmm. and then just sort of spin it around really fast because Slimer's rotating as yeah. he spins around the chandelier, so detail isn't very important. But, yeah, so when you see Slimer in that epic shot of him spinning around the chandelier, it's just a peanut in see, neon green. That, that Stuff like that is... Those are the stories that, to me, people... And, you know, we're going to get into the whole generation thing, but people today don't realize that's that was sort of the... The ingenuity that it took yeah, back that in was, the day. that was the texture of cinema back then, was people doing crap like that, you mm-hmm. know? People figuring out, like, well, look, what do we have? Uh, take a peanut and paint it green and then flick it around. Let's see what happens, Yep. you know? And it's not digital, by the way, so when we film this, it'll be a day and a half before we get the, the rushes back to take a look at it to see if it looks halfway okay. Yep. And then if we like it, we got to get it processed. I mean... I, I, I really do think that there were certain people in the industry back then who genuinely thrived under that pressure. That if you said, you got 12 months, give me a movie. Well, that's they didn't have a choice. They, yeah. But some people, like you said, the, the cream really rose to the top. Because, yeah. you know, who's going to think, oh, let me throw some paint on a peanut and see how it works. Because that even, and that scales back to... 
even some of the most iconic movies of all time that might even be considered more iconic than even Ghostbusters, because um, my dad actually is a huge fan of The Wizard of Oz. So whenever I'm watching that movie with him, he forgets that he's told me all the trivia behind Wizard of Oz, kind of like what we're doing now. <laughs> I watched that in college so many times and with Pink Floyd playing. Of course you did. Stone. Naturally. But I mean, um, one of the things that they did when uh, Dorothy and the gang go to the Emerald City is you see the horse of many colors. He's green yeah. and then he's yellow, then he's purple or whatever. Do you know what they painted that horse with? <laughs> Probably something terrible for the horse. No. Jello. Oh, they! It was a white horse, and they dyed him with Jello. Okay, so that works. It takes that kind of ingenuity to just. And sometimes you have to take a step back because all the technology in the world sometimes doesn't solve a problem as right. simply as a product that you've grown right. up with your entire life. So yeah, a peanut and some paint is what solved that problem for this particular movie. Yeah, and, and you know, and that I think. I think there was there's a real craftsmanship, and I think it's one of the reasons why I love this movie. You know, we just watched the scene where uh, Ecto-1 is driving out. It's the first time they're going out on a call. Mm -hmm. And the way that um, the doors of the firehouse open and you see the license plate that says Mm Ecto-1, just just the way it's lit, it's very easy just to watch that and go, neat. But you have to step back and think that, you know, Laszlo Kovacs, and I, I know I'm not pronouncing his name right. Um, he had to light that. He had to, unless it was the second unit guy, in which case, I'm sorry, second unit guy. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know your name. You can stop listening along with Canada and all the other countries. Yeah. But anytime you see one of these shots, every little touch of light is intentionally placed. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, it, it's... It's not accidental, and that's the thing about, like, with the peanut story that you were saying, uh, that was brilliant, but it wasn't an accident. And it sounds like, you know, it's like, oh, it's funny, you know, the guy came up with this. No, that was a stroke of absolute genius. Oh, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, like you said, he didn't just fumble across that solution, he had to think of it. It wasn't like some, you know, somebody spilled a splash of paint across the frame and suddenly it was a masterpiece. He had to make that happen still. Right. He just had to make it in a tighter time frame and budget than he thought he was going to have to. But regarding the Ectomobile that you were just referencing, uh, it's like you said, these days in 2018, whether you're working with Netflix or Hulu or whomever, who will just hand you a big fat cat check and say, make a project, buy all the supplies you need, do what you need, light what you need, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and just do it in computers, so who cares? Well, the stark contrast to a movie like this and that also just shows you the genius to which this movie was handled is the fact that the ectomobile it was a 1959 cadillac ambulance outfitted with gadgets and gizmos (laughs) yeah and that you know that was that was the car that the ghostbusters tooled around in but it they only had one yeah so these days when we have the epic universal which um, i got to see once I actually saw the Ectomobile, the actual prop. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I saw that once whenever I was a kid, and it was like the coolest damn thing ever. Oh, I'm sure. 
But these days, you take for granted the fact that, you know, you see Christian Bale crash the... Oh, yeah. the bat. Right. Well, it's not the Batmobile for him. It's the Tumblr. But uh, yeah. he crashes that thing like four or five times. Chris Nolan has got the funding behind that movie to buy him as many tumblers as he needs to crash or well, whatever. And the amazing thing about that is it's not just the fact that uh, Nolan had, you know, he could go out and get another tumbler. He had enough money to hire somebody to build the tumbler mm-hmm. and it was an actual vehicle that you could i mean they, they had the thing i think it was on top gear and then hire somebody that actually knew how to drive the yeah. damn thing on top yeah. of that as opposed to go out and find a 59 cadillac and we'll, we'll get a couple mechanics just to make sure it works long enough for us to get the shot and then it can blow up if it wants to Whereas with the Ectomobile, yeah. the car actually broke down at the end of the <laughs> yeah. shot where they're driving across the Manhattan Bridge, where, and it's one of the more the, one of the few serious scenes in Ghostbusters, arguably, where Beautiful Ernie Hudson, scene. one of my favorite scenes, yeah, where Ernie Hudson he's talking to Dan Aykroyd about whether or not he believes in God, and they start talking about revelations and all the ghosts that have been rising from the dead. It's just, it's funny that the Ectomobile would die at the very end of that yeah. conversation. What are the odds? Yeah, I mean, this thing, this movie had like, you know, $80, $83, you know, like $30 million as the budget. And it made... Oh, God, um, it fortune. Made, it made almost $300 million back yeah. from what I've found out. Yeah. It And Reitman, I think, was... Because Dan Aykroyd was obviously the one who spearheaded the project. He brought Reitman on to direct because Reitman had also worked with Ramis and... So they all got along, and he knew that Reitman had the right relationships to get the project off the ground. But Reitman basically went in and was like, janitors that clean up ghosts yeah. give me $30 million. Yeah. And apparently that's how the movie happened. Well, but you know, if you watch the movie, and I've said this before, I've said this uh, about God knows how many comedies. If you were to tell me that my life depended on making a successful movie, and you said you got a choice: make a drama or make a comedy. No way would I say comedy. Comedy, not. comedy is so hard to do correctly. When you watch this, not only is the comedy absolutely perfect, but it has a real solid. You could take Ghostbusters. They could just as easily have made a serious movie in 1984, change the name, lose the camp. Yep. And it would have been a totally acceptable drama. Well, apparently that was a huge thing when they were actually doing, uh, not the crowdsourcing, they were basically just testing it on audiences to see how it was even going to perform. And apparently it made it made Reitman just down like ghostly pale, huh, you know, yeah. pun intended. But he was very, very nervous about it. Up until the point where, because it was basically the opening scenes where he then saw the audience just laughing their faces off, mm-hmm. but then suddenly lunt or like covering their eyes when the old lady librarian, because that was the only ghost shot that he right. had to share with right. test audiences. So when people went from laughing really hard one moment to gasping and covering their eyes the next, he was like, "Oh my god, we've done it! Yeah, that's it's gonna yeah. work." Well, it, it's sort of like you know, um, with. Uh... With Jaws, when Richard Dreyfus was watching um, one of the screenings of Jaws, and you know he just looks at the audience reaction, and he says, "Well, Stephen did it." You know, yep. you look at the audience, and their 
they're losing themselves in the mood that you were creating and they're reacting. It's like a musician playing an instrument. Oh, yeah. And you're making that music, you know, the way you want it to be. You're playing the audience like an, like an instrument. Um, and again, that's the thing. You've got, you know, a Dan Aykroyd and an Ivan Reitman. Um, you know, you've got these people, these, these great performers who are bringing their own contributions to all of this. And what's amazing to me is that they're, they're giving so much characterization to all these characters. They're, they're adding so much quality throughout the production process. Mm-hmm. But people today, you know, we, we do. I mean, I do. We all genu- genuinely forget. When you press run on a camera in 1984, you got 30 seconds. Yeah. You're going to have to stop the camera. You do that a couple times, you got to reload the camera. Right. That takes however many minutes. You know, David Lynch, one of the things that he said about digital, why he loves digital cinematography so much, is that he can just press record and just run the camera. And if he wants to, he can just stop the scene and talk to the actors and let them, you know, they, they can fool around and get, get their fingerprints on the characters and all that stuff. Yep. These guys had 30 seconds here and there to do that stuff. They had to walk in already with a certain style and panache. Oh, yeah. They, they had to click a certain way. They had to be on already. It yeah. was There was no adjusting. There was no heating up to the scene. It was just they had to know pretty much what was happening the right. second they walked on right. set. And it's that it's that great New York. It's what I refer refer to as the New York theater quality, from the 1940s up through the 1980s. You had this great quality of actors who people who had cut their teeth in all sorts of different places, but they had done theater in New York, and they just had a certain vibe, a certain style, and that's what these movies are. And that is something that I really do genuinely fear we've either lost or almost lost. I kind of think we have lost it. Well, it's almost taken as a snootiness these days because I think you said in our Rocco episode how um, we were were referencing the Golden Girls and you said how B. Arthur was just this, you know, this amazing stage actress and how she had been brought up a certain way oh, yeah, through yeah. the theater and it, it's a big thing and that trickles down to even projects like clerks yeah where randall got called out by uh the woman who plays dante's girlfriend not caitlin but the other one and uh apparently when they had one of their first meetings uh, she pointed at randall or jeff anderson was like i don't think he can do this he's <laughs> not trained in theater so it's just that's something that we've lost, but I don't yeah. know if it's a detriment because it, well, you get I don't so think much more different talent that way. I don't think it's a training thing. I think it's, well, okay, here's a perfect example. Like, we're watching it in the studio right now, and the, the montage is up. There was, in, for years and years and years, screenplays were written on a very specific formula. Comedy, right. drama, horror, whatever. You had three acts. To the point where they became predictable. Well. For some, you know, some of them it, did. The, the good writer, I mean, you know, I wouldn't say they're predictable. I mean, Chinatown is written on the three-act structure, but you can't predict where it's going to go. Okay. You well, know. well, like. But you can tell when, okay, here is, we're about ready for act one to end. So we should be seeing a reversal 
Right. And now it's you can be... start predicting the patterns. Sorry, right. is a better yeah. way of saying it. Kind of like with Hallmark movies, not to drag everybody down to Hallmark's level, but you can say, oh, there was a misunderstanding. The characters aren't going to be together for a while, but then they'll make up. It's just you start recognizing the patterns for sure. Right. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there are certain, you know, very fixed things in cinema, but they are fixed because they work. Right. Because they work very, very, very well. Like the three action. Now, look, again, if you're somebody like, you know, David Lynch or, or you know, there's plenty of other people who can do it. Uh, well, not plenty. You know, um, there are some directors who can go in and freeform it and do a Mulholland Drive or a, you know, Lost Highway sort of thing and make it fantastic and wonderful. But for most people, you stick with that three-act structure you know, the Sid Field three-act screenplay. Um, You're still going to get your original unique touches on it with yeah. each, even though it's a formula, for yeah. sure. Because not, well, not every director can just come in and reinvent the wheel. Right. I mean, look, everybody who studied under a particular school of a particular artist, you know, the, the, the Dutch masters or the people who studied under Da Vinci or whoever... They learned a particular way of doing things. It doesn't mean that they all produce the exact same painting. Right. You know. Because they all have their own spin on it. Right. Lots of variations. Lots of lots of improvisation. And with this, you know, you look at this and you go, this is as closely adhering to the three-act structure as Jaws or, you know, anything Spielberg ever did. Um and it works and the audiences appreciate it to the point that you're almost anticipating. Okay, right. now we're going to get to this comfortable part of the movie where everybody's kind of doing good and, and everything's they're happy. Yeah, and, and we it's can fun. relax. Yeah, from we're it. having fun. And then something bad's going to happen. And well, we're going to have a sudden reversal. And that's Peck. Yeah. You know, that's the beginning of Act 3. Yeah, he brings the discomfort. But we're, we're in the happy uh, part of the story right now right. where Bill Murray's chasing after Sigourney Weaver. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. In what twisted universe is Bill Murray the the sexy Elvis of the group or the Paul, whatever oh, you uh, want, however you, you, you want to phrase you it. You can hide it all you want. You know. <laughs> it's a Cinderella story. That finally, <laughs> you know you do him. Oh, goodness. But yeah, he's he's just chasing Sigourney Weaver this entire movie. I do him. Uh, well. Because then I could tell everybody I, you know. It's like being beaten up by a great in boxing. Like, you got to tell people, Muhammad Ali kicked yeah. the crap out of me. That's... Is that kind of what yeah. we're talking well, about? Yeah. Right He's here? like, well, what have you done with your life? Well, not much. I did have sex with Bill Murray. Like, <laughs> no does one ever count? does. So you know, you did. Saint Peter would say, "Come on in." Yeah, yeah. early he gates want, open. They'd want to hear that story. Yeah, God wants to hear all about this. Come on in. I mean, right before he kicks you out of heaven, but he's still going to say, "Oh, I, I still have to hear this." Uh, yeah, it's so funny because yeah, Bill Murray does have that kind of roguish behavior, like the charming. He's the he's king, a, and he knows he's the king. I guess so, no matter just, what realm he's he, in. He just, he accepts the fact that the world is, that's that's Peter Vinkman. He's the king, he's the best, he just understands that the world hasn't caught up with that idea yet. Whether he's chasing a gopher or Sigourney Weaver, he goes after it with yeah. equal enthusiasm. But uh, she actually, Sigourney Weaver, we haven't really talked about her much. She, oh, I love Sigourney Weaver. Who doesn't? So so damn talented well this movie was fresh off of alien and that was a very serious movie as those of you who are just as emotionally scarred as i am do recall but 
Uh, apparently, Sigourney Weaver had a really interesting take on her audition for this movie. Uh, when she went to audition, she offered up a wordless scene where she turned into one of the dogs. Really? Uh, to, that, you know, is one of Gozer's yeah, yeah, yeah. minions, those gorilla dog things. She actually acted like one of the dogs where she was, like, writhing around and just, you know... Uh, writhing on the couch and snarling at uh Reitman and he apparently thought that was the way to go because you know obviously she got cast and, and well, uh, you know I mean it kind of makes sense when you think about it you know having seen Sigourney Weaver you know she can do comedy but you know she has a dark side as well having done Alien yeah. she can handle both roles yeah and it's all of a sudden she's doing this and arguably that's the most difficult part of the whole movie and she's pulling it off well, and what's funny is then you see her in later projects like Beetlejuice, right? Because Beetlejuice... No. No, was Beetlejuice before this? Or after this? No, Sigourney Weaver wasn't in Beetlejuice. Oh, sorry. I'm mixing her up with Gina Davis. I apologize. Ooh. Oh, it's the hair. Ooh. They both have that curly 80s hair. No, working that girl. Mixed up. Oh, the sassy sister <laughs> the sassy movie, sister to, die movie to die hard. Yeah, yeah, which I'm sure we'll be talking about since which... we're coming up on Christmas time. <gasps> Yes, your favorite Christmas movie. We can think the about that. The best Christmas movie ever. Besides Titanic. But, mm-hmm. as we discussed in a yeah. former episode. But, uh, sorry, to get back to Sigourney Weaver. No, that was in the Lost episode, wasn't it? I'm not really sure, listeners. Uh, like Bob and Dave. Oh, it's very possible. Yeah. Like, did you ever watch Mr. Show? You never? No, okay, no one. But, few, um, few people remember it. Oh, but yeah, I can't believe I mixed her up with Gina Davis. Sorry, Sigourney, if you're with, if you're God. listening. I know we lost her, too. <laughs> no, Canada Sigourney, and everyone else. No, not when I, you know. <laughs> she screw, wouldn't deign to listen to Screw us. Canada. I don't want to lose Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> She's worth millions of Canadians. Sigourney, we're sorry. We'll do anything we can to get you back. Actually, as I say that, I wonder, is she Canadian by any chance? I honestly have no idea. I know Dan Aykroyd's Canadian. Yeah, well, we forgive him for that. He makes vodka, and he puts it in a crystal skull, so... I mean, he does. And apparently he got um, a lot of the inspiration for this film from his own personal life. I was unaware of that. Oh, yeah. He is a a big... um, I don't want to say believer, but he is... He is very curious about... Yeah, he's... Well, I remember I saw him years ago... God, I don't remember where this was. I think it was one of the times I saw the Tonight Show. Um, he he was talking about he had an op. Um, he had a house that was formerly owned by an opera singer, and he he said that he it was his opinion that the house was haunted by the singer. Okay. He would hear her singing in like the stairwell, going to where he had a recording studio. And he would actually hear this woman singing. And you know what? I mean, to say what you will about ghosts and what, where, where you come down on that issue, if you hear something like that, something's going on. Uh, undoubtedly. And according to Mental Floss, where I got this list of crazy facts about Ghostbusters, he kind of grew up surrounded by spiritualists anyway. Apparently, huh. uh, his great-grandfather was a noted psychic investigator who conducted seances and it just got passed down through his family to the point where even uh more a uh, guy named Maurice Aykroyd's grandfather he was an engineer for Bell Telephone and when Maurice allegedly tried to use his know-how to create a high vibration crystal radio 
that could contact the spirit world. That was the, people did that stuff, you know. Um, oh, so that was fairly common back in well, the day. Well, it was. A lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, like Arthur Conan Doyle, the the creator of Sherlock Holmes and and, and other things, mainly Sherlock Holmes. It's interesting you bring him up because that actually blends into Egon's character. But say what you're about to say. What Doyle? It's kind of a sad story because he was very much. Um, he was a big proponent of spiritualism, which was a big thing uh, for a lot of the Victorian era, the later Victorian era, and uh, on through the beginning of the 20th century, well past the World War I. Um, you know, he, Doyle spent a lot of his time trying to make contact with his son because oh. his son had died. Yes. And... Arthur Conan Doyle was nobody's fool. I mean, he was an extremely intelligent individual. He basically invented the modern idea of a hero franchise. He Doyle did. invented that. You he, know, he sort of inspired the writers past him, like Edgar Allan Poe. Like, uh, well, I mean, just the very idea that he had a character that was very popular. He killed him. And then well, everybody got mad. And so he had to bring him back. He had to bring him back. Because people were wearing black uh, bandanas around their arms when Sherlock was killed off. Yeah. And Sherlock was not a real person ever, listeners. And to that end, that actually kind of factors in back to Ghostbusters in more ways than one. Because Egon Spengler was inspired by a couple of different people from what I've come to find, just like Sherlock Holmes. Because Sherlock Holmes was kind of based on... Uh, Real people, just like Eon, Egon Spengler was, but... Yeah, there was a doctor who taught Doyle. Uh-huh. Who used to... He would tell students. Uh, they would have a cadaver. Yes. And he would tell them, you know, all this stuff about this person. They was, how, how do you know that? And he would just point out all these things on the body. Uh-huh. You know. Because working backwards was kind yeah. of the way that that doctor did that. And there was also somebody from Scotland Yard that uh, Doyle looked up to who was apparently just a fantastic detective, not to a Sherlockian level, obviously, but it was kind of a blend of these kinds of characters. But according to Harold Ramis uh, and Mental Floss, let's not forget, Egon... Great website, by the way. One of my all-time favorites. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I go there basically every day. And we love you too, Mental Floss, so if you're listening... Um, yeah, apparently Egon was the first name of Egon Donsbik, a Hungarian exchange student... Uh, at Stephen K. Haight Elementary School, with whom Ramus went to class, where he grew up in Chicago. And then uh, Spengler came from the German historian and philosopher Oswald Spengler. And then just for the look of the character in general, Ramus copied the style of an unknown guy he'd seen on the cover of an abstract <laughs> architectural journal. So it was just a blend of three people that he obviously considered very highly intelligent. See, but... And that is... That's a very Sherlockian way to go about it. Like, you just blend the best qualities. Well, but what... Tell me how many directors, um, writers, producers of our generation today are reading architectural magazines? None. I'm going to say approximately... Uh, carry the two. Yeah, none. Right. That, I think, that's one of the reasons why everything that comes out now... As far as movies go, movies are dead. I mean, the you know, the, the concept of cinema, I hate to say it because I grew up, I spent every weekend, I didn't care if it was a movie I didn't want to see. I would go every week, excuse me, every weekend, 
and I would go see a movie. Yeah. Nowadays, in a given year, I will go to, at most, two. Typical year, one. Well, that's, I think, attending cinema, which as... You know, most people know these days this is a very expensive venture. It's not really oh, yeah. worth it to leave the house to go see a movie. No. Now, I'll rent a movie. I'll Redbox a movie. I'll watch it. I'll buy it on Amazon Prime. By the way, speaking of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And speaking of movies. Uh-oh. I learned something very troubling. That Benedict Cumberbatch is currently the voice of the Grinch? My son. Oh, no. Went to a birthday party where they went to see the Grinch. Okay. So I was close. You were close. I went to go and see, uh, to pick him up. Um, there was a movie poster because, you know, the only, you know, when I was a kid, that was part of the joy of a movie theater was looking at all the posters of stuff coming out soon. Absolutely. And seeing all the... Will Ferrell. Oh, no. This Christmas. No. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear the end of the sentence. A Will Ferrell comedy where Will Ferrell plays... You want to take a guess? The Grinch? No. Well, you hinted toward the Grinch, so now I'm confused. What have we been Buddy talking about? Sherlock Holmes? Yes. All right, listeners, I've got to go because I'm quitting life. Yeah. That's what we got, folks. We got we got Holmes. And the poster? He's going to yell for no reason. The poster is him and whoever the fudge is playing Watson. If there's an Irene Adler in this, I'm I'm leaving. I'm never never. You mean Irene? No. It's Irene Adler, not Irene. See, that's they didn't do that in the Cumberbatch one. Her name isn't Irene. It's Irene. Irene. Yeah, but nobody calls her that. To Sherlock Holmes, she was the woman. Woman. Yes, the woman. Woman. But yeah, Yeah, you um, know, Will Ferrell will start yelling. Which I, I. don't mind Will Ferrell. I really don't. I actually in Will Ferrell movies. Yeah, I mean, no. I had this. I had this debate with a boyfriend many moons ago. Was when good he, in Austin Powers. Uh, well, that's because they set him on fire. <laughs> um, when he came on the office several years ago, I was uh, dating this guy, and I was so upset that Will Ferrell was coming on the office. And he said, "Sweetheart, you love Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell movies." I said, "That's the key, Will Ferrell movies." He's going to start yelling. Yeah. For no reason, within the first three episodes, or I give you my next paycheck. Yeah. And do you know what he did? In the first episode? In the, <laughs> I think it was the second when Steve Carell was trying to teach him how to take over the Dundies. He sat on top of Will Ferrell and put headphones on him and was trying to get him over his fear of public speaking. So he's like, read these cue cards that I wrote. Read them as loud as you want to. It doesn't matter how loud. And <laughs> naturally, Will Ferrell's like, I'd like to thank you all for me. And I was like, yep, see, I yep, told you. There you go. He's going to ruin the office. But fortunately, they killed him off, so he didn't well, get the chance. I have to wonder, because I haven't heard anything about this movie until I saw no that poster. Has. You just no. ruined my life with that information. This has to be one of those things where somebody went, well, let's make this movie. And then 15 minutes later, they went, oh, my God, what have we done? Well, just we've already spent the money. Release it at Christmas. No one will know. Especially not with the Fantastic Beasts and all that coming out to compete with it. Yeah. It's just, yeah. no. And Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah, excuse me, Benedict Cumberbatch as the Grinch. I I could see that just for the voice, but the reviews I'm seeing so far are not encouraging. It's, well, I, I have the review of an eight-year-old boy who said it was, eh. 
That, that, that was his review. That sounds about right. Yeah, he's in, yeah, I mean, yeah. Jim Carrey himself threw a kid into a shredder in his version. So as mm. far as I'm concerned, he still holds the crown. Uh, the original cannot be touched. But And he says something about a hoe. Oh, goodness. That, that, no, that's in there somewhere. Yeah, he does. Yeah. No, but it, it's... It is sort of, you know, and I want to turn this into, you know, a, a requiem for, you know, back when cinema was something good. You know, um, when we did bother to go see it, which is what yeah. we were talking about in the first place. Now we don't really typically bother to go. No, but I mean, there is a sort of, you know, it, you don't want to become, I don't want to become the old person who talks about, oh, you know, things were better when I was a kid. Back in my day. Because not everything was. TV, today, um, you can watch things on television that are absolutely mind-blowingly good. Better than anything that I had when I was a kid. Um, Just, uh, see, a few months ago I watched the BBC show uh, Broadchurch, which uh, uh, David Tennant and... um, well, you sold me on David Tennant. Yeah, it's David Tennant and, um, oh, God. Um, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. She was in She was in uh, Mitchell and Webb. She, she's playing the queen in the new season of The Crown. I don't, I don't uh, I haven't watched any of those shows. I'm sorry. If I hadn't just drank, like, I think we're kind of 30, going off the rails yeah, here. Yeah, 32 ounces of beer. Um, but, but the point is, though, fantastic very very good things on television so i'm not just saying you know things were better when i was a kid right but there is a certain quality of performance of writing take a movie like ghostbusters the concept go back to the beginning you know the google description of ghostbusters it Mm -hmm. does sound very silly this does not sound like a movie that people 40 years later are going to be talking about and saying, this is one of my favorite movies ever. Well, and I'm certain every generation, we're probably hitting that point ourselves where we think that movies that were released when we were younger were the perfect blend of what should qualify for a movie theater as to what we're seeing being released these days, like Will Ferrell as freaking Sherlock Holmes. So... And I'm sure our parents felt the same way. But the thing is, though, I think our generation appreciated our parents' movies, too. We See, did. I, I think that's the thing. Because we're still hung up on Star Wars. We're still hung up on the Sherlock stories, even though they're, yeah. they're, they get revamped. Don't get I me mean, wrong. But Jaws. Oh, Jaws yeah. predates me. I'm still devastated that they took that ride down at Universal. It's, yeah. it, it, it's a Universal concept, yeah. Universal. But movies, you know, examples of cinema from well before I was born... You know, not just the Ten Commandments and Cleopatra and, you know, the great epics, things like that. But, I mean, you know, Butch Cassidy, um, you know, The Great Escape, movies. Movies that managed to be timeless despite what they were about. With Ghostbusters, you can plop down any 10-year-old and have them sit and watch this movie. And they'll understand it. And they'll appreciate it. Yeah. It You don't need any specific understanding of current pop culture no it, it's nothing so specific that you can't sit down anybody of pretty much any generation yeah, and they won't somewhat enjoy and, it yeah it's not it's not just trying to get the most people to spend their money right which is amazing and it's it's something that i think hollywood hollywood 
back in 1983-84 could invest $30 million and make $300 million. Right. Now, yeah, I'm sure very often, I know for a fact, they would frequently invest $10, $15, 20000000 million and lose every penny of it. Right. You know. But the thing is, you know, Hollywood, instead of giving us another Marvel movie, find some people who are genuinely talented Give them some money. And see what they come up with. Yeah. Well, that's where I think I see where you're going with this in the sense that, like, it's not that cinema itself is dead. dead. It's that going to the movies might be a concept that's dead because the movies are getting pick or Hollywood is getting pickier and pickier with the basically the subjects, the projects that it will even support to begin with. Whereas you had, as you said earlier, your Netflix, your Hulu your Amazon Prime, who are willing to throw ridiculous amounts of money that they've spent the last 15 years building right. yeah. and get seriously original. And it, well, it's look at a far stra- range yeah, of content. I mean, Stranger Things, you know, written and directed by the Duffer Brothers. Who are they? They were nobody before they made that. Stranger Things. Uh, yeah. You've got things like uh, uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, even, which yeah. is just... It's almost like not a revamped Gilmore Girls, because that's not the way to phrase well, it's, it, but um, it's, it's what... It's so much more successful than Gilmore Girls ever was because Gilmore Girls had a network to contend with. And there's just, there aren't the same strict defining parameters with the Netflix and the Hulu and the whatnot as there are with cinema. Because they still have to abide by specific ratings, by specific laws. Like it, they have to meet specific rules in order to release something in the first place. Whereas Netflix does not. If you pay for it, you can put the child setting on your account to make sure that your kids don't have access to certain programs, but that's up to you. Other than that, you're getting purer programming than we used to get because networks and studios used to be the absolute only way to do something. Right. But then people started building their own projects and their own studios. Like, you know, call it Adam Sandler syndrome if you want, but he was one of those silly people that wasn't necessarily met so easily by Hollywood, but then once he started making enough money of his own, he was like, I'm going to go off and make my own stupid movies. Right, like, that's right. just what he wanted to do. Well, and I think I think a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact, and by the way, you know, with Magnificent Mrs. Maisel, I can't think of that without thinking of, it, it, and this is a generation thing, I don't think of the Gilmore Girls. I think Joan Rivers. Oh, because that is the story of Joan Rivers yeah, coming up it, as a comedian. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, here's the thing about, you know, you look at Ghostbusters. And I don't know with, um, um, not with everybody, but with, with Aykroyd and Murray and, and Harold Ramis and um, uh, Rick Moranis, there was this Saturday Night Live, um, SCTV, which I don't think, not that many people even know what SCTV is anymore. You know, SCTV was sort of the Canadian Saturday Night Live. Okay. You know. Because I'm not familiar with that myself, so. Well, you had, you know, Martin Short, John Candy, uh, Rick Moranis, all these people. They cut their teeth on these very, very low budget, um, you know, um, skit comedy sort of, um, you know, beside what was the, what was the, uh, the Groundlings. Sure. Um, you know, you had all these things. You had these people who, who really spent a lot of their young careers learning this very sort of guerrilla comedy. Right. You know, like, 
here's how comedy works. And here's how you do it in a way that's intelligent and creative. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the point where, yeah, we have Will Ferrell or Sherlock Holmes. Not even a relationship to something like Ghostbusters or Caddyshack or even old SNL or old SCTV or old, you know, whatever. Um, You know, that I, I think that's what we've lost is we've lost that sort of foundational thing. You don't have somebody like Rick Moranis spending years on this Canadian program um, playing all these characters that, you know, are only iconic to the, you know, I'd like to say that Ed Grimley is iconic, but he's really only iconic to the people like me who remember SCTV. Right. You know, you probably don't even know who Ed Grimley is. I do not. See, that, that's the thing. Um, like my wait, Vegas... no, no, no. Ed Grimley was Martin Short. Sorry, that's Martin Short. Either way, I don't remember who Ed Grimley is, so it's it's kind of irrelevant as Look, far as it's like... it's the guy from Die Hard. Oh, goodness. <laughs> he was the reporter. It sure is. Yeah, Peck, he was the reporter in Die Hard. Well, there are a lot of old voices and faces that I rewatched this movie because when you picked it, I was like, okay, this is one that I'm actually going to have to go back and watch because I just did not remember it clearly enough, but... Uh, speaking of old voices, faces, etc., uh, we do hear during that awesome montage where the Ghostbusters are gaining, uh, gaining credibility throughout the city, you hear the voice of Casey Kasem the talking down Casey through, Kasem. going through your top 40. So. Oh, okay, he was the best. Yeah, zoink scoop. Rockin' New Year's Eve. Oh, yes. No, that's Dick Clark. Oh, that's Dick Clark. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. But Casey Kasem was shaggy on shaggy. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> zoink scoop. But... Uh, yeah, so you've got, yeah, you got Peck. Can you can you imagine a world? Think about this. There was a world where DJs, not people who spin fake records at you know the pre-show of a Ramstein concert. I'm talking about disc jockeys, ones who actually had to host a show for yeah several hours at yeah. a time. Yeah, you know Wolfman Jack, you know Dick Clark, Casey Kasem. Yeah, there was a world when those people were huge celebrities. Oh yeah, you know. Well, radio used to run the world. Yeah. Oh, and we're actually at this great moment in the movie where it's always bothered me where, yeah, the EPA, they're (laughs) the bad guys of Ghostbusters gang because, like we said, it probably wasn't the most state-of-the-art lockbox or containment field for all the ghosts that the Busters were catching, but the EPA comes along and basically... they're, They're so upset about the fact that the Ghostbusters are storing this containment facility in the city yeah. that their solution is to open it and yeah, unleash Peck, it on the yeah, city r- yeah mr peck is clearly not an engineer because he you know press this button to shut it off shut it down because uh, you know I'm, I'm mad that it's here and that it could potentially contaminate the city but we're gonna open it to well solve that, that, that was again that was such an 80s trope character you know you had the the government bureaucrat who was just gonna do it because by god i'm the he government had the bureau- power. yeah yep you know, he's the health inspector. He is going to shut your restaurant down, Bob, you know, because <laughs> because he Hugo. is. Yeah. You know, Hugo is Mr. Peck. Yeah, he kind Hugh, of is. Now Hugo that I think would have shut down the containment field. Mm. I don't care, Bob. Shut <laughs> it down. It smells so yeasty <laughs> with all the ghosts escaping, Bob. <laughs> but yeah, so now all the ghosts are escaping from Ghostbuster Central and the world is about to end because all the dead are risen all at the same time and now they're wreaking havoc on New York. Mm-hmm. 
And Casey Poor Kasem still somewhere spinning his top 40s. Like, he, he, nothing could stop that man. He's in Canada. Is that where he is? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so then Mr. Peck, or Agent Peck, gets the Ghostbusters arrested. Look, look how much he's putting into his performance here. He's in, like, three scenes in the movie. Oh, but he's so committed. He's He is the bad guy. I don't think yeah. of Zool. I don't think of... It, I don't really think of the ghosts as the bad guys in this movie. Agent Peck is the bad guy in this movie. Because now there are fireworks. Beautiful hand-drawn uh, uh, special effects. See, that's the thing, is that, like, you have to think, especially with only 12 months of time yeah. with which to do these special effects, because I know we do our Alf to Seinfeld ratio. I would say this one sticks up on the higher end oh, of the yeah, scale, absolutely. just yeah, because... Absolutely. You know, you can compare it to 2018 all you want to, but it's just, I think the the animation and the special effects just hold up so well. well oh, and maybe there was a Axel Foley reference right there, because one of the ghosts just snuck up a tailpipe of a car, and I'm pretty sure they're going to have... Yeah, our practical uh, special effects taxi driver. Oh, the, absolutely. The rotting taxi driver. I'm pretty sure that's the corpse from uh, Tales from the Crypt, so... Well, you know, and it's it's interesting watching this, because you realize how movies that worked um oh and they're slimer yeah that you know you have this combination of of real tradecraft where you have great special effects but the great special effects wouldn't work without great lighting and the great lighting wouldn't work without great cinematography great right. camera work it wasn't just all cgi right. you had there were multiple factors that even made the effects worth doing in right. the first place and then you have great editing and editing, I honestly believe, you know, that's, you could take a movie, you know, Spielberg once said that, you know, he makes, uh, he makes rough cuts and then gives it to his editor and the editor, that's where the magic happens. Sure. And it's absolutely true. It's that's like, where the story gets yeah. really told. It's like George Lucas said, he, George Lucas, you know, and, you know, credit where credit's due. He said, you know, I make silent movies. Then I give them to John Williams. Yep. And he makes them. You know, he did uh, the same with Harry Potter. I mean, the man's—he's a genius. But John the, Williams, not George Lucas. He right, had nothing yeah. to do with Harry Potter. But it also comes down to good voice work. And another thing that I learned is when Dana gets possessed, uh, it's actually Reitman. Oh, is that the director who does the voice? I didn't no, know Dana, that. only Zul, because apparently his voice is very deep in real life. Anyway, so. Once Dana, oh, excuse me, once Dana gets possessed, uh, Reitman is her voice. And uh, I have another fun fact for you that you would never realize because just being the younger of the two of us helped me to realize this. You pointed out one of the first times we talked about doing this movie, how Rick Moranis gets sort of possessed slash toppled by the gorilla dog at Tavern on the Green. Yeah. And, Not Cavern on the Green. Well, see that. Oh, see, you beat <laughs> me to it. Damn it. I thought I had you scooped on that one. Because, yeah, in the 1994, right? Uh, I believe the Flintstones, when that came out. And oh, I, no. I was I was talking about Futurama. Oh, well, I'm talking about the Flintstones. Because when oh. they did the first live action Flintstones. Because this was before Futurama. Fu Futurama ripped it off then. Yeah, they absolutely did. Because when they did the live action Flintstones in the early 90s. Uh, Rick Moranis, who's obviously also in Ghostbusters, he played Barney Rubble in the Flintstones. And he and Betty fall on hard financial times while Fred and Wilma are actually doing extravagantly well. 
So Fred and Wilma are out at this fancy restaurant called Cavern on the Green, where Barney is their busboy. So that was definitely a nod to Ghostbusters. Yeah. Wow. See, yeah. See, whenever I said Cavern on the Green, I was explicitly thinking of the uh, episode of Futurama. And I've seen where, stills of that. I've yeah, not seen where, the episode, but I know what you're talking about. Huh. So they ripped it off. Oh, they absolutely did. That was that was in the Flintstones far before it was ever in Futurama. Matt Groening. Sorry, buddy. Come on. Um, he was never listening in the first place. He'll never know. No. But yeah, that's that's a thing. Well, but um, oh, now they're that doing that iconic scene where the Ghostbusters are trying to rally and figure out how to save the city from a jail cell because Peck gets them all imprisoned and. Then naturally, I gotta the, go. The mayor wants to rap with me. Yep, Bill Murray is just doing his studly thing. I gotta go. The mayor needs my advice. Like, see you guys later. And he just struts out of his jail cell. Oh, because that's a Bill Murray character. You know, that's that's why The Life Aquatic um, is such an amazing movie. Is because it is very much a movie conscious of the fact that it's a Bill Murray movie. But in every Bill Murray movie, he's Nothing nothing gets to him. You know, he's unflappable. It doesn't matter if he's in jail. That's kind of his trademark thing. Yeah. Even in Caddyshack when he's clearly homeless and insane <laughs> where he's chasing after a gopher as a, a greens coordinator. Yeah. Just... Oh, and that beautiful moment that we're seeing with Sigourney Weaver making out really hard with Rick Moranis. That's just... That's interesting to watch, considering... Yeah, there's no tongue, though. You can tell. But there's no context for it, either. I mean, it's like... Well, he's, they're the, both he's the gatekeeper. She's the key master. No, I understand Wait. that aspect of it, but... No, the other way around. Yeah, sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> but aren't they, like, aren't they possessed, technically, by the same spirit? So why is it making out with itself in different well, forms? No, no, because the, gate, the gatekeeper and the key master work for Gozer. Oh, but they just find make-out yeah. session times in between working for Gozer? No, I think Rick Moranis just paid off somebody and said... Hey, let me if, kiss Sigourney If, if we're doing this movie, can, can we just have one shot where I just really snog the hell out of Sigourney Weaver? That's so British. But, but that makes me think that, you know, what if John Candy had played Lewis? That would have been... Ooh. It would have been... Oh, see? You don't have any problem with that, but you have a problem... You, like, well, you, you know. Suddenly John Candy's an issue? No. That's weightist. <laughs> That's what that is. No, it's just, you know, hey, look, Rick Moranis is still with us because he didn't die of a heart attack on a hotel bed. I'm going to go cry. I'll talk to you guys later. Hey, I'm not knocking John Candy. I love John Candy. (laughs) He's barf. He makes really, really large pancakes. (laughs) Who are you? For his nieces and nephews. Barf. Yes. I'm half man, half dog. Home the desert. Yeah. We ain't found shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Yeah, but anyway, as far as Ghostbusters, we're now at the awesome scene where they're every important person in New York is in the mayor's office. Yeah, but see, here's, and this is one of the other interesting things about this movie, and this is what I'm saying about what we don't do nowadays. You look at the people who are, you know, the police commissioner, the bishop, not the mayor, because the mayor is an explicitly comedic character, but everybody else is talking like they're actors in a serious movie. Yeah, it's almost like all the president's men sort of level of yeah. seriousness going on in the room. Right. Except for Bill Murray, who could not care less about the fact that the world is about to end. 
Because he's just, you know, cats and dogs living together. <laughs> it's complete chaos. Like, what is it that he says? Um, Lenny, you will have been responsible for saving the lives, lives of millions, millions of registered <laughs> voters. Yes. I have seen shit that would turn you white. <laughs> God. I mean... And meanwhile, Peck is still trying to shoot them down, which makes absolutely no sense. But, you know, the, the, at the same time, though, one of the reasons why the, you know, the, uh, the remake, the 2016 Paul Feig remake failed, um, this was still all scripted. You know, this isn't just an ad-libbed scene where the actors go in there and just kind of make it up as they go along. It is still scripted. You know, the Paul Feig, the, the 2016 Ghostbusters, there's so much of that movie that is just so obviously just very not talented people. See, yeah, that's the difference is that you've got to be able to trust the actor to do improv. And as much as I love, because 2016 was the, the women's Ghostbusters, right? I don't even like saying it because, I mean... No, it, I'm it just was, trying to make sure that I'm yeah, not mixing yeah, it up it. with the other one. I like one. to say the Paul Feig. It's not the women's fault. It's Paul Feig's fault. No, and, and yeah. that's what I'm about to get around to is the fact that you have to be able to trust specific actors. And those actresses are all very talented individually. But what you were talking about earlier in this episode, it goes back to the fact that all of these actors cut their teeth in very specific groups around each other for years and years and years. Whereas... You know, you could give them leave to improv certain things. So, especially with two of them being the writers of the movie and so on and so forth. And they all had kind of a chemistry and a looseness that they could bounce off of each other. And that was great. But with Figs, as you want to call it, uh, Ghostbusters, the women were obviously just random comedians who... They weren't picked as a group. They were obviously picked very individually. Yeah. So it the chemistry does, does it doesn't read the same. I love that shot. It is a great one with yeah. the uh, the smoke coming out of the building. Yep. Which Dana's. is which is just ink and water, you know, and yeah. it's it's so it's so pretty. Special you know? effects are special effects. Yeah. Now that we're getting up to the ending of this one, um, well, did, apparently with that shot where they've got um, the street blocked off. Where they were in, I think it was Central Park, unless I'm mistaken. The building, yeah, the building was supposed to abut to Central Park. It was near, yeah. yeah. And so the problem was that they needed to get that wide shot where, like She's you said. She's never been to New York. I have not. Yeah, it's. It's not a secret. I don't know it, why we're whispering. It's sad. But anyway, um, so a lot of these scenes were shot in New York, whereas a lot of them were not. That that one in particular with uh, Dana's building going super co-op to central spiritual park, uh, central park west yes but uh that scene where dana's building is going super co-op <laughs> to spirits folks the heart of the ghostbusters they're here <laughs> marching through the streets ghostbusters ghostbusters and people are cheering them Fucking on like love they're the, this movie people are cheering them on like they're the beatles because it's awesome because that was the 80s it could have look these guys it could have been Rocky Balboa going upstairs to punch the shit out of Gozer, it would be the same thing. Probably. <laughs> but see, that was what I was getting to with that shot in front of Dana's building. That actually shut down most of Manhattan the day that they shot it because they had to get um, like a special license or special permission to shut down the street of Central Park West. And they actually blamed it on, I think it was a Scorsese movie. 
that was shooting at the same they, time. Wait, really? They blamed it on Scorsese? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. They were like, well, I guess they figured that he would have more street cred and people would get less pissed, but it just... They should have just blamed it on Woody Allen. People are used to it in New York. You know, back then, you know, Woody Allen was always shutting stuff down. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what you call an old man burn from an old man sitting in there in the corner. Oh, you of the think studio. that you think that's old man? Do you know the Isaac Asimov story? <laughs> yes, I do. That was okay. actually in this yeah. article that I I researched so I would understand all of your old man stories about this movie, Jason. Well, go ahead and share. Go ahead and share. Um, I'm gonna this have is, to find this, it. This this scene this is in Los Angeles. Though. This is on a soundstage. Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah. when you go to the top of Dana's building as well, that was also built. That was on a set in Los Angeles. That wasn't actually in New York. But look how well it's lit. Look at how seamless it is. There oh, yeah. they are. Oh, and one thing that comes up, it's about to happen, is uh, we've already passed part of it where uh, when the busters are first going to get Slimer out of the hotel... And who is it, Egon, that says you can't cross the streams yeah. of uh, which their proton packs. Which, yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, Chekhov's rule, you know. Don't cross the streams. Well, no, Chekhov, you know, if you're, if you know, look, you can't have the gun. Well, Chekhov's rule is you have to, if you show the gun in Act 1, you have to shoot the gun in Act 3. Yes. You know, you have to set it up early in the movie that there's this thing called crossing the streams. And that that's going to come that that will become a thing towards the end of the movie. Well, that was they did that retroactively Matt in this Payne. movie because crossing the streams actually came up because they had to finish everything so quickly, including writing the script and getting everything done that uh, Ramus and Ackroyd hadn't actually figured out how the hell they were going to get the Ghostbusters out of the last part alive. So. They just came up, they basically figured that since the proton packs weren't really backed up with hardcore scientific fact, they were mostly left up to the audience's hey, they were imagination. On the cover of magazine, man. Oh, God. <laughs> but they were never fully explained scientifically. So right, yeah. they were mostly in the audience's imagination. So toward the end of the movie, when they're going to shoot this, Ramus and Ackroyd were like, oh, we'll cross the streams and that'll just create this big. Boom. Um, yeah, basically. <laughs> a big boom, enough to save the day. So then they actually had to go back. And uh, it was actually one of the first scenes where Bill Murray was in costume with his proton pack. It's not the first one, like you said earlier, but it was one of the first scenes because they did have to go back and refilm and say, oh, you can't cross the streams when they were trying to bust Slimer. Yeah. So they had to do that whole concept retroactively to this movie because it had to be done so quickly. You know, my my wife will be furious about this, but I'm doing an Etsy search now for proton packs. Because I just thought, you know what I need in my office? A proton pack. I need a proton pack. Well, if it's going in your office, does your wife really need to know about it? Well, she'll probably figure out why the $600... Uh, oh, God, it's that expensive? Oh, wow, look at that. You're going to get your ass I'm kicked, I'm totally Jason. ordering it. Live... On pre-recorded radio. I was about to say. Well, shut up. <laughs> I like to think of it as live. I like to imagine well, we'll our say, audience listening. We'll we should, s- You know, we should do a live show one day. That'd be fun. But we'll say live for now in the sense that you're alive when you ordered the Proton Pack. You won't be when your wife finds out that you ordered that, the Proton yeah, well, Pack. How about that? Yeah, that is true. Oh, wow, look at that. 
That would be so cool hanging on my wall. <laughs> it's funny. It makes me wonder if uh, the Batman Forever people kind of costumed Jim Carrey to look like Zool because she's in this very bejeweled, form-fitting skin suit, as it were. Like, Yeah, and this is the part that was actually what was supposed to be Paul Rubens, uh, who was uh, yes. Pee Wee Herman. Uh, who I think his, what was it that, was it his rap sheet or was it another project that interfered with him doing? Yeah, this was before he got into trouble. I, I, I'm, I mean, I remember when he got into trouble, but this was 83, so. Okay, so yeah, yeah he, he got into he, trouble He was, he was still, yeah, he was still okay. Oh, okay, so he was still just Pee Wee Herman as far as we knew. Yeah. He would have been perfect as Zool, though, I can completely see it. Yeah. And the Well, he was, part, uh, he was gonna be, um, they, they mention... Earlier in the movie, they mention, God, I can't remember the name of it. It's a uh, Tobin Spirit Guide is one of the books that Egon uses. And it was actually like the ghost of that guy. Huh. Who That's who Paul Rubens was going to be. Okay. And then they said, let's just get some really hot chick from Eastern Europe. and. Well, they'd probably already spent the majority of the budget on special yeah. effects and... So on and so forth. Uh, you know, gorilla you can, dog. You, things. you can tell how much Katy Perry loves this movie because she decided to turn herself into Zool. Yeah. Zool, you know. Well, and you know, you can see how much Bill Murray doesn't appreciate Zool, where he's like, "She's not going to get through us. Get her, Ray. <laughs> Go <laughs> and get just her. Sells Ray. him down the river. <laughs> and just even through that's what I loved about Bill Murray so much is he was kind of an ass through most of the movie, especially when he's trying to clearly you know dupe that poor girl in the beginning of the movie into thinking that she has paranormal powers but well yeah because it's harmless at that point well it's it, a it's a harmless prank until she agrees to meet him later that evening at eight but um it was the 80s it was sex what was gonna happen people didn't get pregnant back then yeah there was no me too movie AIDS back didn't then, exist so, yeah. come on <laughs> but uh now he's you know even through this catastrophic thing where he goes through the state puff marshmallow man and Zool, because, you know, two ghosts back-to-back are not difficult right. enough. But he just has this aplomb to it the entire time where they don't even know that they're going to get out of it alive. But he's like, this is an exciting plan. Yeah. I'm excited to be a part of it. He, just, well, he doesn't it's, care. It's that, it's that Bill Murray, New York, early 80s fatalism where, eh, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to die? Nah. Eh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, I'm not, you know, okay. Oh, well, I guess I'm going to get killed. Okay. You know, it's all in the name of fun. At least I'm dying in the most exciting city that there is to be a part of. Bringing it back around, though, because uh, we're at the end of the movie and we're actually... Well over time. Well over time, but um, let's, let's go ahead and let's talk about this from a standpoint of our ALF to Seinfeld scale. And I will go ahead and say that I would put this... Right up there, kissing the top of that Seinfeld scale, you know. It it would be kissing Seinfeld. 100% agreed. Yeah. Especially because, like, you know, without comparison between 1984 and 2018, you can still, like I said, sit almost any one of any, any kind of age in front of this movie, and it's still going to be accepted. Right. It, it gives you that suspension of disbelief where, yeah... It's it crosses over into comedy drama, but compelling. Yeah, you're yeah. entertaining you, 
and compelling. You are on the side of all the characters. You want to yeah. make sure that they make it through to the end of the day and you're excited when they're the heroes at the end of the day. Spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen this movie. But communists. They they do overcome the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and Zool. It's yeah. very exciting. Well, and I can say I mean, look, you know, my my son watched this movie for the first time and he was probably about 6. Um, Which would the, have been about 30 years later. Mm-hmm. So yeah. He actually went as a Ghostbuster for Halloween, I think, when he was, I think it was when he was six. Well, see, then you already have a proton pack to put on your wall. So yeah, but it's know. an inflatable one. It's not the same. Oh, that's not legit. Yeah. yeah, you need a real one. Well, it's on its way. That's good to know. It's good to know that our podcast will only be three episodes long because your wife <laughs> is going to murder you. <laughs> but yeah, so I would say that this movie definitely holds up. It's... It could have stayed a ride at Universal if it wanted to, unlike Jaws, which apparently shark attacks aren't universal enough to have outlasted the the ride yeah. spectrum in the park. But, I mean, the humor stands up. You don't... It's... Well, it, it, it's performances. Yes. Writing. The dynamic between the actors. Yeah. The, the charisma and the just the bond that these comedians yeah. have it's well it's it, very well, evident in their performances yeah i mean it, it's a recipe where you take writing directing cinematography prop making all these different trades and crafts and everything else put them together and you add that little extra chemistry like you said that little secret ingredient yeah and you put that together and you end up with a movie like this and from concept to execution to here we are decades later mm-hmm and it works. And oh, absolutely. it still works. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, the the vote, uh, the two to zero vote, would be that it is on the Seinfeld end of the uh, doesn't hold up scale. 1,000%. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, we're at the end of the movie and that's everything I have to say about it. And that was our special nerd out edition of Hindsight is Horrifying. That will be the occasional episode that we have where we're not just looking into adult humor, but we are just simply looking back at movies and television shows that were aimed toward, you know, higher caliber intellect or maybe just higher age ranges. We're not really sure yet. We're just going with what we're fond of. So in the meantime, this has been Darth Jader and Jason. You can actually find us on social media. Uh, You can find us at what hindsight is horrifying dot com. Uh, you can find me on email if you have anything to add uh, to our episodes or if you have questions for either of us, you can reach us at Darth Jader at hindsightishorrifying.com. I'm also on Twitter at Darth underscore Jader underscore. And Jason, where can they reach you? Well, you can get me at Jason at hindsightishorrible.com. Horrifying. Listeners, not horrible. I know. God. He has trouble with that. One of these days, I'm going to remember that. Uh, you can get me at Jason at hindsight is horrifying.com. Uh, send me an email, drop me a line and, uh, tell me how much you, uh, absolutely just love what I do. Uh, that's what it's all there for. Jason is to, that's what the internet's all about. Exactly. There are no trolls to be found until next time listeners, where we ruin one of your other childhood programs or movies with subversive adult humor. We'll see you then.